Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. The term mastermind was originally written in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Before that, the earliest documentation that we have of a mastermind group was Ben Franklin's group that he used to meet every single week in a tavern that he called Huntus. Nation, there's no doubt about it. Life is too short to do it alone, and it's not very much fun to do it alone in. Nation, I urge you to go to scalinguph2o.com and find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. I'd love to have a 15-minute call with you to explain all things Rising Tide Mastermind and see if this is a group that's right for you and you are right for the group. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. Trace Blackmore here, your host for the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Of course, your favorite water treatment podcast, the podcast that every water treater is listening to, where that's our goal anyway. And the only way that's going to happen is if you let others know that there is a water treatment podcast there for them and they can simply subscribe and they have a treasure trove of content that they can listen to to help them enhance their day-to-day as an industrial water treater. Well, folks, I am still excited that we just had our best industrial water week yet. Of course, we do what we do here on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. We bring you a brand new episode each and every day to celebrate Industrial Water Week. And as you know, we can't just celebrate industrial water in a day. It takes an entire week. And we like to theme each and every day to celebrate all the things that make our job great. Now, if you are planning for next year, so 2024, Industrial Water Week is going to be October 7th through 11th. So make sure you mark your calendars now and start getting all your party supplies before the rush the week before. You know that happened to you this this year, so you don't want that to happen next year. I enjoy so much seeing the Scaling Up Nation come together and everybody posting their pictures and giving content to, I guess it's called hashtagging content, to IWW23. And if you want to check those out, you can go ahead and look at that hashtag. And so many people participated in that. And that's just so cool. Because that lets us know that when we are having a hard day as an industrial water treater, when we feel like we are alone, when we talk to people that are close to us and they have no idea what we're talking about because they don't have the same context about what our day-to-day is like, we know that we are part of a community. We know that there are other people out there that understand and that are going through the exact same thing that we are going through. And I get comments all the time, even from myself, that that helps make it better. When we know that we are part of a community, 
we just feel better. And Nation, you are part of the Scaling Up Nation, and our favorite holiday is Industrial Water Week. And again, that's going to be October 7th through 11th, 2024. That's going to be the seventh year that we've celebrated this awesome holiday. The person that was responsible for bringing us Industrial Water Week is also responsible for helping us get one water treatment chemistry better each and every week. So here is a brand new installment of Periodic Water Table with James. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is... Citric Acid. I'll give you a couple of freebies today. The chemical formula of citric acid is C6H8O7. Its preferred IUPAC name is 2-hydroxypropane-1,2,3-tricarboxylic acid. How is citric acid used in industrial water treatment? And what concentrations is it available? Have you ever used it? Is citric acid a strong or weak acid? Does it react with metals? If used to clean a system, what precautions or special measures should be taken? Can citric acid in a system interfere with any water analysis you may be conducting? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you, James. We are learning all new things and solidifying things we already knew. And of course, by the end of the year, we are going to be 52 times smarter about the things that we use each and every day. Well, something else you can do to bolster your information is to figure out what conferences are available to you that you can go to and not only learn more about the information you want to learn more about, but meet people you have not met yet. And Nation, that is probably the best kept secret in water treatment. It's networking. There is something special about industrial water treaters. I have been friends with industrial water treaters for years, and nobody has ever held out information for me. If I've had an issue, I would call somebody and they would help me out with whatever I was going through. People have even given me formulations when I needed an extra formulation to help augment a water treatment program. It is just amazing when you network with people, they become your friends, and then they become the community that helps you with your problems because you're helping them with theirs. Now, this is what the Rising Tide Mastermind is all about. We built a mastermind group to help facilitate that. And we always say that it helps us all get further faster while we're having more fun doing it. But 
I can't not talk about the Rising Tide Mastermind. It's one of my favorite things. So if you want more information about that, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. And if you want more information about the shows that I am getting ready to mention and all the ones that I haven't mentioned, because there are so many shows and events on our events page while you're at scalinguph2o.com. You can also go over to our events page and you will see everything that we know about. You will see the 2023 Water Reuse California Annual Conference is taking place November 5th through 7th in Indian Wells, California. To learn more about this, we're gonna have everything on our show notes page along with the National Groundwater Association is having their Groundwater Week show December 5th through 7th in Las Vegas, Nevada. And then to start out the year in January 20th through the 24th in 2024, ASHRAE is having their Winter Conference and Expo in Chicago, Illinois. So go ahead and mark your calendars for those. And if you're driving, don't worry. The fine staff here at Scaling Up H2O has taken care of that. You can just remember, I need to go over to scalinguph2o.com and click on events, and we will have everything that you need to click over and register for these events and learn more. We will also have a button so you can put the event right in your calendar. We make it easy, we make it safe so you can drive from account to account and make sure you can always arrive home to your family. Ten and two people, that's where you want your hands on the wheel. Actually, you know what? I read an article that said that was not taught anymore. That's how I was taught. I think it's now nine and three. So somewhere between 10 and 9 and 2 and 3 is where you want your hands. Keep them there. Don't try to take notes on this podcast. We've got all the notes for you on every single show notes page. And then we even go further with our events page and all the other things that we mentioned. So scalinguph2o.com and you will be safe. Scaling Up Nation, one of my favorite things about this podcast is all the things that we get to learn together on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And that's why I love to have all sorts of different guests on this show. A lot of these guests I have met through you and you sharing by going to scalinguph2o.com and letting us know on our show ideas page who you want us to interview. Well, I was introduced to our next guest at an Association of Water Technologies conference. Of course, we were there just two short weeks ago, and I have known this individual for a couple of years, and I know you are going to get so much information out of this interview. My lab partner today is Dave Fitzgerald of North Metal and Chemical Company. Welcome, Dave. Hey, Trace. Good to see you. So good to have you on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. It seems like we've been talking about this forever. We're finally doing it. Yeah, it's crazy how busy things can get and uh, trying to put our schedules together, but it's here. Finally did it. We are doing it, and I am so excited to introduce the Scaling Up Nation to you. I'm going to ask you in a second to tell the nation a little bit about yourself, but one of the most interesting things that I think I know about you is you are a middle school teacher. How does that happen? 
Well, when I was going to college, I started out as an accounting major. And I took three years of an accounting before I figured out that I like to talk with people. I, I wasn't going to want to um, sit quiet and plow through hours and hours worth of um, data. And so I switched directions, set myself up to be a social studies teacher. And after teaching for one year, realized that I loved kids and um, I spent a lot of time coaching after that, but I really didn't want to do it for my job. And so just taught for one year. And then oddly enough, uh, I had uncles that were in the construction industry and a second cousin who was managing a lumber yard. And because it took me quite a while to get through college switching gears, um, those were my part-time jobs in construction. So I, I uh, moved on to getting into the building material business and was doing that all the way up until the building bubble burst in 2008. And that's when, after managing lumber yards with you know, a dozen people and being in charge of purchasing materials like lumber, which uh, is, is a commodity, um, for doing that for quite a while, I had this opportunity to uh, switch over and really apply my small business management skills and I had to start from scratch as far as chemistry goes, but it ended up being a great fit. I love it here. So speaking of here, you're speaking of North Metal and Chemical Company. Tell us that story. How did you start working there? Well, I actually, like I said, I taught for a year. When my kids got old enough to play soccer, um, I ended up finding myself coaching two soccer teams. And also my kids were on other soccer teams that I was paying for, you know, travel teams. And I just got myself really immersed in trying to do the best I could to make sure that their school soccer team, the, that group of people could, be, could stay together. And I was really focused on having great culture, great com camaraderie um, with the kids. Luckily, one of those kids ended up having a parent who's best friend of my boss, Jeff. And so when the building bubble burst and I needed a recommendation for a job, I got a glowing one from uh, one of my soccer players' uh, parents, and I ended up having about a half an hour interview over lunch for the position and, and got the job. Dave, what does your day-to-day -day look like? Well, we're a pretty small company, and we manufacture sodium molybdate. So we're actually producing sodium molybdate from uh, molyoxide. When we have that product brought in, it's basically reacting with caustic. There's a lot of cleanup um, of insolubles and managing the pH and, and that jazz um, to create a sodium molybdate solution and then drying equipment and packaging. So I ha have a group of people that are focused on the manufacturing of that product. We also do some conversion of dry azoles like uh, tolytriazole and benzotriazole into solutions. And we do a little bit of that with some phosphonates as well. But uh, the majority of uh, the warehouse work is in shipping and receiving, repackaging. We usually bring materials in in 275-gallon totes, and we'll repackage it in drums for um, people as, as needed or 50-pound, 5-gallon pails. And there's me and three other people in the office um, handling, you know, all the inside stuff, the order entry, keeping inventory straight, quality management systems, everything. And so we, we operate really tight. 
because we're a 102-year-old company, it's been our focus to make sure that we were getting the blocking and tackling, you know, just all of the basics as correct as possible. You know, we're lucky that we were handed a company that is debt-free. And I think that's the, that's a lot of times the case when you have a 100-year-old company that went through a periods of time like the Depression and the World Wars and everything. There's, there's this certain philosophy where you don't have those kind of financial obstacles. And you can make those commitments to inventory and make those commitments to making sure that you're serving the customer better than anybody else. And so that's what we've been focusing on. Over the last few years, I've converted to a small extent to try to work on marketing because now I feel like we've got it right. I'm trying to get that word out. I also do all of the um, purchasing. We have a lot of materials manufactured offshore. And so I keep track of the raw material costs for those things and I have them produced. I take care of getting them imported, take care of the tariffs and everything. And so between the international purchasing and taking care of customers who might need something special, and like I said, I have a dozen people, everybody, we have a real flat organization, they, they report to me, and so I do a little bit of everything. Dave, I've never asked you what your company's mission statement is, but just working with you, it has to be something about serving the customer and always being there for the customer and putting the customer first. What is your mission statement? Well, actually, that's something we're just in the process of getting ISO certified. And um, next week, we're doing our very first management review. And that was on the agenda to update. And so our mission statement has been pretty typical as far as um, making sure that we are keeping in mind what's best for all the stakeholders. But really, you know, at this point, I'm trying to look at a way to make sure that if you take care of the customers, everything else gets taken care of. And so in a mission statement, even though everybody does it, it seems redundant that you go ahead and say, and profitability and um, taking care of the vendors and everything. I think when, when you do a really nice job doing everything that you can for your customer, that it, it, everything else takes care of itself. And so I'm, I'm trying to work at that uncomfortable point in the mission statement that says, uh, and maintain profitability, you know, that kind of thing. You send out a regular newsletter, and it's one of my favorite emails that I get. And it's almost like you have a crystal ball that you know what's going to happen with all the raw materials. How the heck do you do that? Well, I'd like people to think that I have a crystal ball. However, when you're purchasing day to day, when you're purchasing multiple containers worth of material each day, and you're in touch with the precursor materials for everything that you're producing, it's almost like looking in the rearview mirror. I mean, you actually know what's going on in the market. You know when the market's already headed up. And when you typically have a lead time for these imported products to hit your warehouse for three months, it might seem like you know what's going on in the future. But because of the nature of where the source of all these raw materials are, it's easy to go ahead and, and be able to see what's happening in your market the next couple of months just because of what's happened with raw materials the, the previous couple of months. Some of the raw materials that have just been on a roller coaster ride on availability and pricing are molybdate, azol, and phosphate. Can we speak to those? So molybdenum is uh, a crazy product. And one of the reasons that it is, is because 
Um, most of the primary molybdenum mines have closed down because there is residual molybdenum available in copper mines. And so it's a byproduct of copper mines, which ends up meaning that the copper market ends up driving how much molybdenum is uh, dug out of the ground. And when you have that, um, that byproduct kind of situation, it ends up sometimes not making sense. And uh, we've gone through a couple crazy periods. Molybdenum dioxide is generally used for stainless steel and superstructures like bridges and skyscrapers. However, molybdenum trioxide is soluble and cost caustic. And so this is what would be a chemical grade molybdenum. And there's a limited amount of that available. And so anybody that's dealing in molybdates has to get chemical grade molybdenum. And that means you need to be on a contract. And basically, contracts are done annually late in the year for the following year. And so what's really interesting is what people think is going to happen in 2024, right now, as they're starting to get molybdenum contracts together, those kind of uh, guesstimates about what kind of recession or you know what's what's happening are going to drive where the contracts are headed and what kind of volume is going to be there. And so the guesstimations now will have a lot to do with where the pricing goes next year because the, the contracts aren't going to change. The miners aren't going to suddenly start extracting more material if the molly market goes crazy because they're really they're copper miners. They're worried about that. Just recently, early in the year, we reached a peak with molly um, oxide had gone up to around $40. It's down back in that $20 uh, to $25 range, which is much lower. But we have a history of that being closer to $15 in recent years. And so a lot of people are going to say, this is, this is a, a pretty high price that, that's going on right now. What about Azols? That's interesting because a lot it, it's always been a dynamic product. But a lot of where um, the problem has been exacerbated is that there are tariffs on those for um, buyers in the United States. And so there's a large anti-dumping and countervailing duty tariff that equates to about 165% additional duty on these products. And so when um, these volatile products go up, not only do they go up, but they go up instead of by 100%. It would be a hundred or two hundred and sixty-five percent because you have to add add that percentage to it. And this volatility has been very difficult to manage. Um, it makes it really easy to get upside down as far as your costs go, and it's also just difficult for somebody on, in the U.S. to import it because the the dollar value of each one of these tariffs is so high. You need a, um, a customs bond to take care of it. And they don't close up these customs bonds. And so as soon as U.S. Customs says, oh, you've exceeded this bond, you need to get another one that's larger, that old bond stays in place and you have to buy another bond. When you go ahead and get a second bond, you can use a line of credit against it. So that, that means that you would have less credit that you can work with with other things. Or you can go ahead and give them the cash and let them hold on to it. But um, some of these Azol bonds have been open for a few years already. So the U.S. Um, Customs has been basically having the bondholders hang on to your money or your credit for a long period of time. And it's been growing each year um, how much has been held up. So there's not a lot of people involved in importing the product anymore. It's, it's, it's almost impossible unless you have a lot of extra cash that you can devote to it. And then the last one you had mentioned was phosphonates. The phosphonates 
that market, it goes through a cycle. Each year around this time, since a lot of uh, the yellow foss, the, the precursor materials, are coming from China, a lot of times um, during the course of the year, China it converts basically from being able to use coal to having to switch for their air pollution reasons, switch to natural gas. And as that switch occurs, there's going to be this huge increase in cost. And, um, and also a lot of times they'll go ahead and do some environmental cleanup at the same time. So this, this time of year we're speaking in August is often a time when phosphonite prices increase. Luckily, we haven't seen too much of an increase yet because demand has been low. It's, we're still left over from previous year overstock to a great extent. Reshoring is a term where we bring products back into the country. Are we seeing that or the potential of that with any of these raw materials? There's definitely attempts to do some reshoring. The difficulty is, is when um, the precursor items aren't available. You know, if we do a great job at extracting things out of the ground at, with minimal pollution here compared to the rest of the world. However, it's so strict here, a lot of times that extraction of materials out of the ground, whether it's oil or uh, some minerals, a lot of times that's been exported. And when the, those minerals are exported, then it gets to a point where the production facilities that are close to the raw materials, they have a huge advantage. And the reshore, the companies that are in the U.S. that are trying to do the manufacturing, they're the ones that are going to come up short when there's any kinds of shortages in the market as far as product goes. So the companies that are trying to reshore, they're just at a disadvantage until we realize that if we're going to take care of environmental um, situations, we need to do it on a global scale and stop exporting this pollution to other places that aren't going to do as good a job as we would do here domestically. Something else I wanted to unpack was you mentioned the, the customs tariffs, and I don't think a lot of people know about those. And you with an accounting background, how do you possibly keep straight something that stays open indefinitely? So it doesn't stay open indefinitely, but the U.S. government does take a while to process things. And so these bonds that are still open basically start from the beginning of 2020. It should be sometime around October this year that they should start closing those and redefine what the tariff is going to be for the for the next year. And right now, um, we've been operating at about 165% tariff that looks like in October should be reposted at around 50% tariff. That's going to be a huge swing. That's, that's going to lower our costs by, you know, 30% or so. And for that reason, a lot of people are maybe because they know this is happening, that U.S. Customs has to do something soon because th this is known there's a huge reluctance to bring material in beforehand um, because you don't want to get caught with overpriced material because the duty was higher. Dave, we all suffered COVID together. There was no playbook for how to endure a pandemic. We all lived through it. We all had different experiences. Many of us bonded together to figure out how we were going to get through it. But looking back from now to 2020, what did we take from COVID and what practices have we learned that are applicable now? And maybe what are some that we need to refocus? 
Well, I think I've told you before, I'm a small business advocate, and I believe there's lots of things that small businesses can do that is just really difficult for larger companies to do. And I think we found during the course of COVID that it was the small companies that could go ahead and dig in and find ways to take care of customers. When larger companies, just because of the nature of their size, because of the different silos, and sometimes because their key performance indicators would keep them from doing the right thing and making the purchases at maybe these higher prices. I think we found that um, looking for a small company that knows who you are, that basically will always allocate what you need for you, there's a huge value in that. If you know, So many times people thought cheapest is best in a flat market, but once you get into a dynamic market, you figure out that reliability is far more important than saving a couple of pennies. If you can keep your manufacturing process going and keep your customers happy, that's invaluable. If you can develop a partner in your vendor to take care of you in some of these difficult situations, you've got a friend for life. Many small companies doubled, tripled, quadrupled, maybe even more their amount of inventory on hand because there was uncertainty. There was higher cost in shipping as well as the raw material. There was longer times in when it was ordered to when it was actually delivered. Do we still need to be holding higher amounts of inventory? What data should we be looking at so we can make better decisions when it comes to inventory on hand? Trace, it really depends on who you're purchasing from. You know, during those years of COVID, and I'm sure a lot of people won't believe me, but there were a couple of periods where we didn't have a product for two weeks because all of the delays in shipping, you know, I I calculated everything and there were still further delays than I thought there would be. But even in the worst of times, We had material every single month, every single item that's on our price sheet and on our website, we had stock every single month. And so during that period of time, we certainly tried to take on um, some additional business, especially if they were small businesses. Um, if we were getting calls from the uh, the big guys, you know, you no, know, we don't have anything for you. You know, if you would have committed to you to us, we would. And we, you know, this is the reason that you need to be uh, loyal customers. You know, if you're interested in that kind of service. But it, we actually grew during those years because we did everything that we could to get material. I had great relationships with our vendors who were making sure that we got material when no one else was getting it. You know, when the cargo freight was $24,000 or $25,000, just crazy prices that no one in their right mind would pay as a business decision to bring inventory in with those um, additional expenses. We did it because we were committed to making sure we had product for the customer. I knew that they would appreciate it and I knew that they needed it. and, um, And so we were able to do those kind of things. We're not the only ones. And um, so I think you need to take a look at what materials some of your best vendors have, the vendors that will take care of you. And those are ones that you can skinny up. Those are the ones that you want to place orders with every single month because they're going to know that they need to have that same amount of material for you every single month. And the ones that um, your best supplier might not be as reliable as you want, those, those are the products that you're going to have to stock up on. So you just mentioned cargo containers cost uh, $25,000 at one point to bring over. 
Where are we now? What, what do we need to know about uh, what's going on currently and in the near future with freight and transportation? So once again, we're talking in August of 23. At this point, it's around um, 2,600 bucks that I, I'm getting um, a container from Shanghai, China to New York or Baltimore. And so that is a good historical number, 2,500, 2,300. Those are the numbers that you will see going back a, a decade. And um, it was a real anomaly when it went up to the $25,000. We're at around 2,600 right now, but that seems to be increasing on the East Coast partly because of what's going on in the Panama Canal. They have a little bit of a water shortage. They use fresh water to be able to run the ships through the locks. And because there's a drought situation, I mean, they're limiting the, the number of ships through. They're limiting the weight of the ships coming through so they can carry fewer containers. So right now, um, you can still get a bargain and bring something in on the West Coast for maybe $1,500. In that case, um, you have a limited number of ports that you can deal with. And the West Coast ports are pretty difficult. And then also in Canada, they've had some, some port strikes. And so um, they've ended up uh, trying to divert some stuff into the United States. So there's always some tricks as far as whether you want to bring stuff in on the West Coast or the East Coast. But um, generally, still after what we've gone through, we're at a great place as far as cargo freight, where it's looking. And we also are in that typical high point of the year because a lot of stores that have materials for um, Christmas and the holidays, they're bringing material over right now. So this is sort of a peak season. Um, I see the, the price of cargo freight staying you know, w nice and competitive. The, the main difficulty is they've cut routes. There's, there's fewer routes. And so you might have a little bit of a, a bigger lead time than, um, than you were used to. There was a time that we could get, we could depend on bringing material from China in eight weeks. Now I would probably say, guess that it's going to be 10 or 11 because there's just, there's just fewer routes. For a while, we were dealing with things sitting at our domestic docks because there just weren't enough trucks and drivers to get them to where they needed to go. Are we still seeing anything like that? We're not seeing that kind of thing, at least on the East Coast. And one of the difficulties, one of the reasons that we heard that is that was a problem not in Baltimore, which is our closest port, but in New York. And the reason was is the cargo ships they could load up enough containers and drop them all off in New York and not have to make any other stops. It was easy to book it to New York. And so they were re refusing to make those additional stops. And because of that, you had a lot of drayage or those, those kind of trucking carriers that were in a Baltimore area that didn't have enough work. But those that were coming out of New York were overloaded. And so it, it wasn't really an overall shortage there were just specific spots that were overloaded at different periods of time. Now we know the rest of the story. Dave, you are a Jedi master when it comes to inventory management. So for people listening today, what are some KPIs that everybody needs to do when it comes to managing their inventory? Well, actually, you might know that I don't, follow KPIs as closely, I dig into the data and I know exactly who's buying what and what kind of trends I'm going after. And so when I'm watching cost of uh, materials, I really don't have a budget. I want to just make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And so I, I take a deep dive into that product. 
I think we have 65 products on the books. So it's not like we're trying to trying to sell a thousand different things. You know, I do have a limited number of things that we're going to be fantastic at providing. And so I'm able to go ahead and take a really deep look and see exactly, you know, what we're looking for. And to me, doing measurements on those derivative things is dangerous because all I'm looking forward to doing is taking care of customers and you do whatever it takes, even if it wouldn't make sense with some kind of other measurement. Um, a good example of that is at the end of 2020, things had slowed down and everybody was trying to dump inventory so that they could make their inventory turns. I think everyone knew that things were going to boom in uh, 2021, in the beginning of 2021. People were getting vaccinated and you know all of that jazz. Plus, there's always a boom in January because people want to stock up and, and start filling their warehouse. And it was crazy because I was able to um, buy material from some folks locally that were dumping it in December and resell it to them in, in January at a great profit. And I would say, you know, I'm sorry, I know you sold it to me at this, but this is my replacement cost. And so I can't sell it to you below that. So when it comes down to any kind of rules, I, I'm a fan of, I don't know if you're familiar with Eli Goldratt. Uh, the Goal is his uh, famous book. And he really focuses just on throughput, the theory of constraints. And that's, that's what I'm always looking at is what kind of constraint I have. And luckily, because you know, we're debt free and, and doing great, I don't have the constraint of any kind of budgeting. I'll, I'll, I'll spend whatever I need to spend to take care of customers. Let's shift gears slightly. I know you are an AWT member, and there are lots of people that listen to this podcast that are members of the AWT, but we also have lots of listeners that have never heard of the, well, it's, they're listening to the show, let's face it, they've heard of the AWT, but they're not members. What would you say to somebody that thinks, nah, I don't know if I should really get involved with an organization like AWT? You know, I, I think a lot of people don't feel like they need any place to connect or get involved, you know, and there is a certain amount of discomfort in initially doing such a thing and showing up and not knowing anyone. It's uncomfortable. But I think that there's a growing awareness that connection and having a place to be able to contribute can help turn a job into a mission that you just love doing. And AWT is one of the places that you can do that. You know, there's a lot of small businesses and a lot of people who would put, take the shirt off their back uh, for you. A lot of great people. And so um, the difficulty is just taking that first step, working your way in, starting to introduce yourself to people. But I think it really, you just need to find one person and say, hey, I'm new. Can you help me out? And everybody would love to be on the welcome committee. Everybody who's been part of AWT for a while loves it and wants to share it and wants, you know, wants to make sure that you as a new person get all of the benefits of it. But there's, there's great training. The convention is a great place to be able to see a lot of your vendors and meet them face to face, you know, shake hands, you know, it, there's, there's not, not as much travel going on any, any, anymore. You know, to me, it's just a wonderful opportunity to, to get together and you just need to make the most of it. You need to have the confidence to know that these people are good people and they're going to appreciate knowing you. You mentioned the training seminars that the AWT puts on, and I'm highly involved in those. And you and I got to spend some time together this past year. For somebody that's never been to one of those trainings, well, what did you get out of it? What would you describe from it? Well, 
every time that I do some kind of training, I get something out of it. And I think that you need to go into it with a certain thought that you're going to be in over your head a little bit. That's really the only way that you can challenge yourself. But there are some courses that are are sort of beginner levels. And there's a lot of stuff that you're going to be familiar with when you first get there. But I would say that you just have to con- have the confidence to um, to stick it out and ask questions. Um, a lot of times at the end of a session, if there's something you don't know, just ask the person next to you. And that's a great way to meet somebody, you know, and, and start learning more. But I would highly recommend that you learn as much as you can early because you're going to love this industry. You're going to love AWT. And then 10 years later, you're going to think, man, I should have really you know, done that before. It's still that old adage, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. But the second best time is today. I, I would recommend everybody get involved as heavily as possible, as soon as possible. I love that Chinese proverb. One of my favorites. Dave, you mentioned this earlier that you really enjoyed coaching kids, but more importantly, bringing culture to kids. As a new dad, and I started this venture with a 16-year-old, so I need all the help that I can get. How do you coach culture to kids? Well, probably what you need to do is just think to yourself that you're going to give them a head fake. In this case, I was coaching them in soccer, and I make them think that this is about getting better at soccer. And really early on during one of the practices, you go to the parents and you, ha- you let them know, this is a head fake. Like I'm talking about a basketball analogy, actually. But um, this isn't about soccer. This is about, in the case of uh, the boys team, turning young boys into great young men that have a bond together. Hopefully they'll be able to carry all the way through high school. And that helps having that conversation with the parents early on because they they know that that is your prime mission and that they don't start getting too yappy on the sideline. And um, during the course of coaching these boys in soccer, you have to really just look at what they need. You know, you, you want them to be successful. You want them to understand that hard work is necessary. Getting out of your comfort zone is necessary. If you get knocked down, you got to get back up, that there's no use in having a bunch of emotions about it. The sooner you get up, the better. And that winning a game is not necessarily that important. What's important is in the long run that you're doing the right things. You have to make sure that the other team doesn't feel like they lost. And so that was something that was really interesting at, at a time that I had a team that had been winning championships in the fall and then in the spring. Um, I would get to the point where we were playing another team and we might be up by a couple goals and I'd take one kid at a time off of the field and the referee would say, coach, you only have eight players on the field. And I'm just like, I know. And the parents would be yelling, hey, you only have eight players on the field. I know. I want this to be a good game, good game. I want the other team to have chances to score and they would score. So it's just you need to make sure what the focus is and that uh, you have kids that grow. I was, I'm lucky because this team that I'm talking about, the boys team, they're getting married now. And every wedding I go to, there are you know eight or so of them together showing up at these weddings. They're around 30 years old now. They still are tight friends. They, you know, they um, often invite me, and it's a privilege to have been part of this group of people that have such a strong bond. 
I see a book in your future. It's not about winning the game. No. Well, you know, Simon Sinek uh, has that infinite game uh, analogy that he talks about, and that's definitely the case. And if you approach work, if you approach all relationships in that way, it puts you at a great mindset advantage to be able to be happy, to be able to have joy in everything that you're doing. Dave, if somebody wants to find out more about you and North Metal and Chemical Company, what should they do? Well, you can find uh, our website at northchem.com. And there's a way that you can go ahead and plug in on a quote sheet that you just want to ask me a question or something like that if you're not actually interested in a product. But if you go to an AWT conference, I usually do a commercial corner. We always have a booth. I adore when people come up to me and uh, and have something that they want to say. You know, it, I don't need anybody to necessarily want to buy anything. It's just really nice to be able to connect with other people who have tapped into anything that you have in common. Well, Dave, I've got some lightning round questions if you are ready for those. Sure. All right. My first one, if you could go back in time and talk to your former self on your very first day as a business owner, what advice would you give yourself? It would have to be to listen more. You know, it's so easy to bring past experiences with you and feel like you already know some things, that you know some immediate changes to make, that there's low-hanging fruit that you want to get on top of right away and take care of. But um, you have to understand that you have a culture there and they've been doing things that way for a while. And there's reasons that they have for doing things that way. And going through the process of listening and making sure that any changes are made are not because you said so, but because you have the shared mission with those that have already been there, that shared mission to take care of customers better. You know, so there were a lot of times that I would you know, come into a place and say, oh, I can fix that for you. Let me get this list knocked out, you know, in the first month. And it ends up, you are surprised that uh, there's a little bit of resentment. And I think that that's, for somebody young, it really just doesn't make sense. But it's it's the best way to skin the cat. It's the best way to get the most improvement in the long run. You've already mentioned several books, but I'm curious, what books are on your reading list? So my favorite author right now is Benjamin Hardy. And um, he has, I think, three books with Daniel Sullivan, yes, that he's written. And it's The Gap in the Game is the first one that they wrote together. And then Be Your Future Self Now and 10X is Easier Than 2X, which I think is brand new out this year. I found them to be fantastic books. I love every one of them. And he, he does a bunch of great stuff on YouTube as well tons of great content that support these books. So I'd highly, highly recommend that. Another book that I love this year is called Unreasonable Hospitality, and it's by Will Guardaria, Guadara. Anyway, he is basically a restaurant owner, and he had been involved in some Michelin three-star restaurants. The thing that I got out of that was those little things that you can do, whether it be something that you feel like is called hospitality or if it's just a simple uh, providing great service, it's usually almost free. All it takes is a little bit of bandwidth, a little bit of care, and it makes a ton of difference. And that book really showed me how easy it is to make small differences by trying to create a level of hospitality that makes people feel like, this is where I want to be. These are the people I want to deal with. 
And then finally, I had mentioned earlier Eli Goldratt, and I reread The Goal recently and a couple of other his, of his books. And there's just some great material there. I can't believe that a lot of it was written um, 40 years ago, but it's still fantastic to know that productivity is completely wasted unless it's being focused at the bottleneck. And so when you're taking a look at how to do things, you want to focus on safety. You want to focus on doing things the right way, quality. Productivity only becomes important at that bottleneck. And so to to try to push productivity through every facet of what you're doing is a complete waste of energy. And it puts those other things, the quality and the safety and everything else at risk. When the writer's strike is over, they're going to be looking for new content. They're going to hear this podcast and they're going to want to make a movie about Dave Fitzgerald's life. Who do you want playing, Dave? So if it's a young Dave, there's uh, an actor, um, Joe Keery, who plays Steve on Netflix's Stranger Things. It takes place in the 80s and, uh, you know, it reminds me of who I was at that time in my life. But if it was an older version, I would love for it to be Brad Pitt and for him to do it in sort of that um, Aldo Reign of Inglorious Bastards, the character he did there. I thought that that was priceless. And uh, even though that doesn't always come out, that's sort of a character going on in my head all the time. My last question, if you had the ability to talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? So as far as historical figures go, I think that Thomas Jefferson would just be so interesting with everything that has to do with his life, his feeling about slavery, what he had done to grow the country. He basically helped create the two-party system. That would be so interesting. But if, honestly, if I could talk with anybody from the past, I'd probably rather have one more conversation with my dad. He passed away in 2019. And you know the feeling when you have a conversation with somebody that you really love and who loves you. Yeah, I'd just love to have one more conversation with him. So Thomas Jefferson would have to take a back seat. (laughs) Well, this has been a great conversation. I really want to thank you for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. It's been a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. And I would love to help you out in any way possible. So just let me know if you'd like to do it again. Nation, this interview was just chocked full with all sorts of information. If you missed anything, by all means, you can feel free to go back and re-listen. And you can also go to our show notes page where we will have a lot of material for you and things that were mentioned during the interview so you can dive further into each one of those items. Nation. Like I said, I'm still excited that we're coming off Industrial Water Week. I'm so excited that so many of you out there in the Scaling Up Nation celebrated that with me. And I'm so excited that each and every week I get to bring a brand new episode to you, the Scaling Up Nation. So until next week, take care, everybody. Scaling Up Nation, are you getting ready to take your certified water technologist examination? Do you wish you just had a little bit of extra help to build your confidence so you can sign up for the exam? Well, Nation, I've heard you and I've got what you were asking for. I work each one of the 75 mock questions that you receive when you sign up to take your certified water technologist designation. 
I share with you the logic behind how I get to certain answers, and I show you how to set up each math equation. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep to get enrolled today.